Welcome, and thank you for joining us today for the teaching and preaching ministry from Central Baptist Church, Kannapolis, North Carolina. As senior pastor, Dean Hunter shares from the Bible how to live in a fallen world. The goal of Central Baptist Church is to change the world by teaching the Word of God. Come, let's listen in. You found Isaiah? Isaiah is a major prophet, not because he's more important than anyone else, but because of the length of his book. Micah, on the contrary, is considered a minor prophet, not because he's less important, but because of the size of the book. I have read that Micah was a short man and Isaiah was quite tall, and that might be the reason. That wouldn't be accurate, but nonetheless, I have chosen a passage today, and uh, for you scholars and theologians, I will not be preaching expositional, but I'm using this text to set the stage for where I want us to go. If you want to stand as we honor God's word, I want to read this very familiar Christmas passage, if you will, from the major prophet Isaiah, written in the 8th century B.C. You have to pay attention for this to be intriguing today. If you're not paying attention, this will be one of the most boring sermons you've ever heard me preach. You have to pay attention. In the 8th century B.C., which is in the 700s, B.C. still means before Christ. Some of our children, just so you know, they see B.C.E., before the common era, and that's an attempt to take Jesus out of history for thousands of years, 2,000 roughly. We've used BC, and it's been good enough. Some of you use Standback, some of you use BC, some of you use Goody. Ah, you old ones caught on, didn't you? I like it. The young ones are like, what? The birth of Jesus was significant enough to split time. We in history for years have told time based on before Christ and not just after Christ, but Anno Domini, the years or year of our Lord. And all of a sudden, we need to change that. That's just extra. But 700 years before the birth of Jesus, Isaiah, the major prophet, penned these words. For unto us, verse 6, a child is born. Unto us, a son is given. Did I not say Isaiah 9? Well, y'all should have known. You're Christian. (laughs) I'll wait. I got to pull what the old preachers used to say. It's good to hear the pages of God's word turning. (laughs) Maybe I should do that more often and then I'll hear them. Isaiah 9, verse 6 and 7. Was it not up on the screen? Okay. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. Of the increase of his government, his government and 
peace, there shall be no end. There's a little mini sermon there, but in his government, it is eternal. Peace lasts forever. It will never end. His government is not affected by our government. His sovereignty is not affected by the sovereignties of any nation. It's everlasting. And upon his kingdom, to order it and to establish it with the judgment and with justice from henceforth, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. God, I pray today as we look through your scripture, specifically Old Testament prophecies, that we, especially as believers, will be encouraged, motivated to trust you, trust your word. I pray for anyone who may be here or listening or watching that doesn't know you in a personal way as their personal savior, that today they will see you for who you really are, sovereign, savior, and a loving, merciful, gracious God who wants a personal relationship with them through his son, Jesus Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So now that we've found Isaiah, quite honestly, this will be different than I normally preach. I have many scriptures, too many scriptures to read to you. They're in the notes. For what it's worth, I always make my notes accessible if you want them for any reason to see if I'm plagiarizing. I'm always open to that because I don't plagiarize often. But there are tons of notes and verses that I would allude to today if I had time. But as I said earlier, I want to bring into light the context of Isaiah as one Old Testament prophecy, but for us to look today as in the last two weeks we've looked at scripture, the angel's announcement to Joseph, the angel's announcement to Mary last week, and today, this idea that the king is coming and look at the prophetic or the prophet's announcements of the Messiah. As I said in Isaiah, he's written, he's writing 700 years before Jesus was born, at least. I even mentioned Wednesday night we had our infamous Christmas quiz and had some fun. And I mentioned the other night that Wednesday, when we think about prophecy, when we think about Isaiah, Micah, Jeremiah, the Psalms, many of the prophets, I don't know how this transpired. I've got a, I've got a great imagination. And you may have this figured out, but I don't know how the, the message was relayed from God to the prophets to the pen. I don't know how that worked. Um, I like to think that he's talking to them and and they're like dictating, you know, and they're writing 
um, taking copious notes as God speaks to them. I'm not sure exactly how that happened. What I am sure of is that what the prophets wrote were the word of God, was, is the word of God. As a matter of fact, I've tons of probably too much information. Peter, when he's presenting the gospel many times, and he's not the only one, but there's a passage in 1 Peter chapter one where Peter presents the gospel and then he actually throws in, hey, this is what the prophets told us of. This is the gospel, the salvation that the prophets told us of. Now, what he's saying that he's really throwing out a, a proverbial bone to the Jews in the crowd. It's like, these, our prophets who told us about this, they were prophesying about this salvation that I am now preaching about. I can't fathom how Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus was born, got a message from God to tell about the coming Messiah. That he would be uh, later, we see in Isaiah 7 or earlier, born of a virgin. And many other prophecies that I want us to look at today as we think about the prophetic announcements in the years past of the Messiah, the King. In Isaiah 7, 14, therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel, God with us. It's, it's important for us to understand, and if you've been here the last couple weeks, I've pointed to this, but it's really important, especially for believers in the 21st century, to be reminded of who the Messiah was that the Jews were looking for. And they had, a, they had an understanding of who the Messiah, what the Messiah would look like, who he would be, but they were greatly mistaken. You don't have to be a Jewish historian to realize that the the, the Jews were under bondage of some type, of some sort, forever. I mean, all the way back to Egypt. But they're God's chosen people. And they believed, they relished in, they were proud to be God's chosen people. By the way, if you ever meet one, they still are. They were God's chosen people, but how do, how do you... Put the puzzle together. If you're one of God's chosen people from his chosen nation, the apple of God's eye, but yet under constant burden, under constant bondage, never free, never liberated, never on top. Of course, Israel had their issues too, like us. When God would try to allow them to flourish, they'd like to be like everybody else and serve other gods and waste their time, energy, and efforts, and um, fall out of his good graces, so to speak, and they needed to repent, and they needed some judgment, and they needed some transformation, and then God would bless them again, and then they, here they go. But to a Jew, to a, to a person in the Jewish nation, they really couldn't fathom how can we be God's chosen people but be under this bondage, other than the promise that one day there would be a deliverer. There would be a Messiah. The word Messiah means anointed one. It's what we in today's, in the New Testament church, would call Jesus Christ, Christ the anointed one, Christ the Messiah, Jesus the Messiah. They, they had this idea of a Messiah, but 
their idea was someone like a King David on steroids. He's the man, and he's leading us, and he's going to lead us to victory, and we'll have financial peace, and we'll have military peace, and we'll be great among the nations, and no one can defeat us. That was their idea of a Messiah, of a promised deliverer. They expected a king, listen to this, who would save them. It's a good time to insert here, and if you haven't heard it in the last few weeks, there's a lot of people today who are looking for a king to save them, but they're, they're, they've overlooked the greatest need of their saving. No man, woman, boy, or girl has a greater need of salvation than salvation from their sins. It's not salvation from debt or salvation from financial bondage or even emotional or physical bondage of some type. The greatest need of a man, a woman, the greatest need of any person in this room is the need to be saved from their sins. Just like the Jewish nation, many people today, unfortunately in church, are looking for the wrong salvation. And as we preached a few weeks ago, months ago, there's some churches that are in the business of giving them what they're looking for instead of what they need. And what a shame that is. Even, as I said a couple weeks ago on Palm Sunday, the Jews were saying, Hosanna, save us. Not realizing what they really needed was salvation. There's a book, if anybody of you know about Lee Strobel, he's famous for writing The Case for Christ. Um, he found out that was so lucrative, he wrote The Case for Everything. There's the case for Easter, there's the case for the resurrection, there's the case for Christ, there's the case for Christmas. And I actually have the case for Christmas and I was reading through it. I got a few Christmas books that I read through or peruse through, then full disclosure, I don't read them all cover to cover during Christmas because I'm just not that kind of guy. But I do pick and choose and hope there's pictures. <laughs> but in the case for Christ, Lee Strobel, if, if, you know, if you don't know anything about Lee Strobel, you need to at least know who he is. I don't have time to tell you about him. But um, he got saved uh, in, a, in a different way. He was a writer for the Chicago Tribune. He was an investigative reporter, writer for the Chicago Tribune. He was an atheist. And um, so he went on a search. I'm, I'm telling you anyway. He went on a search, a spiritual search, and did basically investigative reporting uh, techniques to find out who Jesus is. I'm not saying that we need to do that to be saved or have to do that to be saved or can do that to be saved. I was 10 years old sitting in an RA's meeting and the Holy Spirit convicted me. And I don't have a clue what the teacher was saying. But I know what God was saying. So I'm not, I'm not gonna argue with you about, well, maybe he didn't really get saved because maybe he's only mentally saved or whatever, I don't know. I'm saying. Um, he, he interviews people and basically he approaches everything as in an interview situation. He interviews people, even in the case for Christmas, and one, in one of his chapters, he's interviewing a Jewish man who became a believer, a completed Jew, a Messianic Jew, whatever you want to call him. By the way, if you're new here, um, there's only one way to heaven, and that's Jesus. He's the only way you get to heaven, all right? I'm the way, the truth, and the life. That's what I believe. That's what we believe. That's what the Bible teaches. There we go. Um, so this Jew needed to be saved, and uh, so Lee Strobel's interviewing this Jew, 
this completed Jew, this Messianic Jew, this believer Jew. Everybody caught that now? We know where we're at. And he says, he, and this is crazy. I've heard this from some Catholics too. Not that they're the same, but I've heard this similar story from Catholics to where you would think you'd go to a Catholic school, you would know about Jesus. Or at least about the Bible. Sometimes that's not the case. This Jewish kid went through Jewish school all of his life, was raised by an Orthodox Jewish family, and he tells Lee Strobel the only time he ever was taught about Jesus was as if Jesus was a derogatory, almost like a cuss word, to the, in Jewish school. And some of you are a little aware of Judaism and how this works and make, makes perfect sense to you. He said the only time he heard his parents talk about Jesus was in a derogatory way. And the first time he ever really saw Jesus uh, in a way other than, he, he actually said he thought the New Testament, um, it's, it's in the book, this guy says he thought the New Testament was, um, how did he say it? I'm gonna make sure I don't mess, mess this up. He said he thought the, Jewish, uh, the New Testament was uh, anti-Semitic, and a Nazi handbook. He was taught through his life as a, as a Jewish child in a Jewish family. But his idea of the New Testament was that it was anti-Christ. It was some kind of, you know, certain sect of the population used it as um, Nazism. That was his idea of Jesus. He said the first time he ever saw Jesus in a different light was on the road, walking by a Catholic church, and he saw Jesus on a cross, um, crucifixion scene. And he kind of reiterates what most Jews would say, and I'm not trying to put words in Jewish, Jewish people's mouths, but this is the idea, that who would want to worship a Jesus, a man dying, bleeding, suffering on a cross? What kind of religion is that, that that's the kind of person you would worship? Because obviously he didn't know or believed the rest of the story. And as a Jew, this is the Messiah. We gotta picture this before we go any further. This is the Messiah you promised us, God? This poor carpenter on a cross, unrecognizable because he's beaten and ripped to shreds with a crown of thorns on his head, nailed to a cross which was a curse to the Jewish people? And we're supposed to put our trust in this guy. He's the Savior. He's the Messiah. This isn't King David. And he said, he began to, this Jewish man said, he began to read the Old Testament again as he's searching, as he's trying to do his Jewish duties. And in his words, and I wrote this down, I quoted it because he said, in his words, he was stopped cold by Isaiah 53 where the prophet Isaiah is writing 700 years before Jesus was born, and he says this, he is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. You imagine a Jew reading that? But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. 
He said as he was reading that, he was stopped by those words and he thought, this has got to be a mistranslation. He was reading an English translation. So he called his grandmother, grandmother Jew, send me your copy of the text. And to his surprise, it was exactly the same. And he said his wheels were turning and he began to understand for the first time that the Old Testament, in our words we would say, is all about him. It's not just history, it is his story. And this Jew who had been taught anti-Christ teachings, quite frankly, from a Jewish child in Jewish school, began to see Jesus just as the prophets had said and who he really was. And he thought, how is this possible? And it reminds me and it ought to remind us that throughout the centuries, there's been, it's been said that there is a scarlet thread that runs through the scriptures that begins in Genesis, it ends in Revelation, but Genesis through Malachi is all about him. There's been messages preached about the scarlet thread that runs through the Bible. The great Bible teacher William Evans said this, and I love this, I hope you catch it. He says, cut the Bible anywhere and it bleeds. The blood of Jesus stains every page, every book in both Testaments. He says, the atonement is the scarlet cord running through every page in the entire Bible. It is red with redemption truth. As a preacher, just side note, it's a burden to preach any text and you gotta bring Jesus out somewhere because he's in there. It's all about him. And it reminds us, and I hope today it reminds you and if you're looking at your watch where I'm at, it's still introduction and it's a lot longer than everything else. It's all right. What it should remind us of and encourage us as believers is God has a plan. God has always had a plan. I don't know about you, but I'm, I, I mean, I don't like the stuff I read and watch on TV, and I don't like some of what these clowns in the circus in Washington are doing, but at the same time, I can have peace because I know, number one, most of them are idiots, and number two, it doesn't affect God's government. We have to, Christians, we have to look at it that way. We're a citizen of two countries. This is not our home. We're just pilgrims passing through. And with all the problems, let me throw it out for any visitors, it's still the best country on the planet. And I'd still die for the flag. Right? I'd still have coffee with the president. I'd count it an honor. I'd call him sir. I'd call him Mr. President. I'd hope he was awake. Could answer some questions. Then again, I hope some of you will stay awake and you're already asleep. <laughs> I told my wife, I said, I'm gonna bore some people this morning. And um, I don't think she meant what she said. She said, no more than normal. And I was like. <laughs> I think she was trying to be helpful. As we think about this Jew reading, coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus as the Messiah, it reminds us that God has had a plan and nothing takes him by surprise and it's, it's unfathomable to us and I don't have two minutes for any theologian or preacher that tells me they got it figured out because his ways are not my ways and his thoughts are not my thoughts and the psalmist says his knowledge is so high I can't attain it so I just stop trying 
I stop trying and I keep trusting. Don't try to understand it. Trust him. Trust his word. You can't figure it out. He's God. And from the very beginning, Peter says, he had a plan before the foundation of the world. Now figure that one out. Before you were around to help him figure it out, he already had it figured out. He didn't need my help. He had it figured out. What did he have? The plan of salvation. Peter says it. Who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world. Talking about Jesus Christ in 1 Peter chapter 1. Even the resurrection from the dead in verse 21. From the very beginning, even in Genesis, we see foreshadowings of the prophecies of Jesus. Now, I don't think some people would ever see that. But a believer sees it. A believer looks at Genesis chapter three, verse 15, where Adam and Eve have sinned. I love that passage, by the way, because uh, he blames her and she blames him. And then God says, well, here's the, y'all know that, right? The woman sinned first, just in case you're not awake. <laughs> the man was trying to be submissive to her and said, all right, I'll take it. And then when God shows up, the, the, the man says, the woman you gave me. <laughs> and then the woman says, the snake. So everybody's blaming everybody, and it's continued on forever. Especially that man blaming the woman thing. But after they had sinned, and after they're facing the consequences that God said would exist, and the day you eat thereof you shall surely die, even then, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we see God telling Satan his punishment. He goes on to tell man and woman their punishment. But in Genesis chapter three, verse 14 and 15, and the Lord God said unto the serpent, because you've done this, you are cursed above all cattle, above every beast of the field, and upon thy belly thou shalt go. Yep, he didn't used to slither on his belly. I'm glad I didn't see him before, and I hope I never see him after, because I despise them, because they're cursed above all. <laughs> verse 15, and I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. And this enmity, this division shall bruise thy head and shall bruise his heel. We see the picture, the foreshadowing of Jesus, even in Genesis chapter 3. And then in verse 21, and most of you know this, they, they were naked and now they needed to be clothed. And their clothes were not good enough. The Bible says they were in the garden, naked, and didn't care. It's not just they didn't care. They didn't even have any knowledge that that was any, anything negative. But they sinned, and their eyes were open. And it's like, this ain't right. By the way, it ain't right to walk around naked. And so they realize, this ain't right. And what do they do? They, God gives us a picture. They take leaves, and they make their first fruit of the looms, and, and God says, that's not good enough. <laughs> because your, your works are not good enough. Yeah, it covered it up, but that's not good enough. So God killed the first animal and gave them what was good enough. And even in Genesis chapter three, God has a plan and he's prophetically foreshadowing the plan to come. God's always had a plan. I'm amazed by prophecies as we look at these prophecies in scripture. It's been said, I've read many times, but usually the agreement is there's over 300 300 messianic prophecies of the birth, the first coming, life and death and resurrection of Jesus. 
all been fulfilled. Now, there's a few things that haven't been fulfilled later, but that's to come. But over 300 have been prophetically promised in the Old Testament and fulfilled by Jesus and Jesus alone. 33, I haven't counted them individually, but I'm told, I've counted a lot, 33 individual prophecies were fulfilled by Jesus alone on just Good Friday. Now, I'm a numbers guy, I like numbers. Sometimes they don't like me, but I like numbers. And I want us to put, just, just, for, just to help us try to wrap our minds around this, and once again, quick, quick time out. We don't have to have help with the text to increase our faith. I think we trust God. But I'm also man enough to say it helps. I like archaeology. I get excited when they find something that I've believed for 50 years or however long. Right? That doesn't mean I believed it more but it helps. I like when atheists are proven wrong. I like when atheists say there's no God. I like the fact that they have to say God. I like the fact that if there was no God, there would be no atheism. The fact that there is a God, they come up with their own religion. I love that. I love the irony in hearing an atheist say, I don't believe in God. If I didn't believe that much enough to call myself an atheist, I wouldn't even say the word God. That's me. I'm a little weird. The odds of one man, I want want us to to try to swallow this. The odds of one man fulfilling only eight of these prophecies. Uh, There's a screen that's supposed to show this so we see it. One man filling eight is one in 100 million billion. One man fulfilling eight. That's the odds. One man fulfilling 45, y'all ready for this number? If we did zeros, we wouldn't have enough screen. And somebody's thinking, and? I'm sorry, I can't help you right now. (laughs) But the reality is, you wouldn't bet on that. Ever. The reality is you can't comprehend, I can't comprehend that number. And this is, these, this is science, this is math, these are facts. That if one person fulfilled 45 Old Testament prophecies, that's the odds of it happening. Do the math with 300 real quick. One man fulfilling 300 prophecies? But Jesus did. And only Jesus could. I went to bed, I I went to bed thinking about this last night, not just the odds, but thinking, I wonder, and I've never thought about this before, I do my best thinking at night. You don't want to know. I wonder if anybody ever tried to claim to be the Messiah. The answer is yes. They did. And I wonder how long it took somebody to figure out they weren't. Probably not long. I wonder, please take this just just for whatever value it throws into this. I wonder how many women 
I know what would happen today. I don't know that the chance would, I wonder how many women got pregnant and tried to say they were the mom of the Messiah. Because they got in trouble, they got caught. Just throw it out. Here's what I do know, if that happened, it didn't take them long to figure out. He wasn't the Messiah and they weren't married. Why, why? Because it's obvious and because the odds. If the odds are one in trillion, trillion, 13 times, then it's not gonna take you very long to figure out I'm not him. This is, this is, this puts in, I've heard this years and years ago. I hope it puts it in better perspective. They say those odds, the 13 trillion times, trillion, 13 times, was it billion or trillion? Trillion, 13 times. Would be like taking silver dollars and going to the state of Texas and filling the state of Texas two feet deep with silver dollars. Marking one silver dollar, blindfolding a man, and letting him walk the state of Texas and finding the one marked silver dollar. That's the odds of that taking place. One man did it. Only one man could do it. There are 300 plus in the Old Testament that Jesus fulfilled. I wanna throw out something real quick. This is just some specifics that you may or may not know about. In the, in the random book of Numbers, there's a prophecy in Numbers 24, not only of the lineage that he would be from the line of Jacob, but about the star that appears. In Psalm chapter 72, the psalmist prophesied that gifts would be, would be given to him by the kings. Psalm 72, shepherds, talks about those who are in the desert, in the dust, that would be there to worship him. In Zechariah chapter nine, I love this one for some reason, I've always remembered Zechariah 9, 9. Zechariah, this other obscure prophet, prophesied that the Messiah would enter into the city of Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. Thousand years later, guess what happens? He comes in. In Zechariah chapter 11, Zechariah, hundreds of years before Jesus was even born, prophesied that he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Now, if I asked, I'd get some response. I'm not gonna ask, but theoretically, if I asked, there would be people who would consider themselves a skeptic. And one of the questions you would be asking, or at least the devil was playing ping pong in your mind right now, is this. Couldn't Jesus have known the prophecies and fulfilled them knowing what they, were, what they were and that they were expected? For the rest of you that that thought never entered into your mind, don't let it ever enter again. This is just for us messed up people that thought that, okay? Forget I said it. Here's, here's one, let me throw this out. Um, this, this helps the skeptics. If that were the case, how could he, before he was born, choose where he was born? That's just one good example. I don't have any other. That's a good example. 
How could he choose his lineage before he was born? How could he choose the timing of his birth? Y'all ready? I'm gonna preach in 15 minutes and finish. Here we go. Here's the, here's the outline. Here are three specific Old Testament prophecies that foretold truths, specific truths about this king. Number one, the Old Testament prophecies foretold the place of the king. I'm gonna, I'm gonna cliff notes this for some of you, all right? You'll appreciate it. There is overwhelming lineage text confirming the prophecies of the line, the family tree of Jesus. Overwhelming. I can read them, I'll bore you, you can have my notes if you want them. He was from the very book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 12, that he would be from the line of Abraham, from the line of Isaac, from the line of Judah, from the line of Jacob, from the line of Jesse. Jeremiah prophesied as well. Isaiah says the line of Jesse. Now, once again, for people that aren't quite there Bible student-wise, the, I would, this would make perfect sense if Jeremiah, Obadiah, Micah, and Isaiah were in the same school sitting side by side in a desk. Hey, I'm gonna write this about Jesus. Me too. And then over here's Matthew and Luke and John. And they say, we're gonna write this and it'll look like it came true. That'll be cool. That's not what happened. And we have proof that it didn't happen that way. These prophets were hundreds and sometimes 200 years apart, they never crossed paths. And they lived in different parts of the world. And they wrote to different people for different reasons. And then old Matthew and Luke and John and Mark, Mark's a little special, I don't know what was his deal, but they're they're 2,000 years later, 1,500 years later, 500, 700 years later. How did this happen? Man, what a coincidence, they got it right. What a coincidence that Jesus fulfilled these prophecies. And that's called sarcasm. There are no coincidences with God. His word is true. And Jesus is the fulfillment of those prophecies. He was of the lineage. He was prophesied. He was born, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Another minor prophet, little Micah, born in Bethlehem. How did he guess that one? Well, it's a big metropolis. It's the capital. No, it was a good guess, Micah, no. But in Micah chapter five, verse two, 700 BC, Micah prophesies that Jesus will be born in Bethlehem. Nobody can figure out why he chose Bethlehem other than he was ordained by God to write the prophecy. God's word, he'll be born in Bethlehem. I like to think Micah probably said, what? So once in my mind, he's writing, tell me more, God, tell me more, God. I'm at chapter five, God, verse two, God. That's a joke, he wasn't, he's writing, and he says, what, whoa, hold on, did you you say Bethlehem? (laughs) Bethlehem? Can can we do a little better in Bethlehem? (laughs) I don't know how that worked out, but it wasn't common to say Bethlehem. He's born in Bethlehem. I mean, Bethlehem's still a dump today. Matter of fact, it's the place you feel the most unsecure when you go. Not that it was that way then, but it wasn't. Canapples, okay. So he prophesied Bethlehem. 
From thee shall come the ruler. Out of thee shall come the ruler of Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. He's prophesying the Messiah born in Bethlehem. Some of you were here Wednesday night, and we kind of went through some of this. But what a coincidence that the bread of life was born in Bethlehem, the house of bread. What a coincidence that Joseph was engaged to Mary. Life is going great. The registry's been taken care of and gifts are pouring in. They're confronted by an angel that something's about to change their life forever. Now, I think they knew each other, but I don't know that Mary knew he was from Bethlehem. And I don't think they knew, they didn't have any inside information that there was about to be a census and they're about to have to pay their taxes. But at the right time, coincidentally, while she was great with child, hear ye, hear ye, come pay your taxes, we're gonna count everybody. And they're having conversation over dinner. They've been told you gotta go back to where you came from. And Joseph says, I'm from the hood, I'm in Bethlehem. I gotta go back to Bethlehem. <laughs> what, Bethlehem? Yeah. Now, once again, I'm not a Jewish historian, but why did she go with him? Maybe she had to. She's great with child. You know, I think I'll take that 25-mile walking trip. That sounds like it'll be good for me. I don't know why she went. Maybe she had to, maybe she didn't. But coincidentally, she went. And they walked. Or rode a donkey. That makes your nativity set better. To Bethlehem. And coincidentally, she didn't go in labor on the way there or on the way back. But she just happened to go into labor while they were in Bethlehem, according to the Gospels. When 700 years before Jesus ever made his entrance, the prophet inspired by God wrote that the deliverer, the Messiah, would be born in Bethlehem. Hundreds of years before he was born, not only was there prophecies about the place of the king in Bethlehem, there's prophecies about him having to flee to Egypt. There's prophecies in Jeremiah, there's prophecies in Daniel that talk about the fleeing to Egypt because of the murdering. 700 years before he was born. This, I, found, I found this out this week. I gotta share it. You might like it. If you don't understand it, just like it and go with it. For the skeptic to believe that Jesus could have intentionally been born at the right time at the right place, in Daniel chapter nine, some of you eschatologists will perk up when I say Daniel. Daniel chapter nine, if you read chapter nine, verses 24 through 26, if you're an eschatologist, you'll be like, I understand that perfectly. If you're an honest person, you'll go, I don't understand that. But if you read it, what Daniel says is that the Messiah would appear at a certain length of time, Daniel's big on time, after King Artaxerxes I issues a decree for Jewish people to go from Persia to rebuild the walls in Jerusalem. 
This would put the anticipated appearance of the Messiah at the exact time in history when Jesus showed up. Add that to the twist. Coincidence? No. No coincidences with God. He would be born and he would be raised in Nazareth. No coincidence. Old Testament prophecies foretold the place of the king, but Old Testament prophecies also foretold the purity of the king, that he would be sinless. Isaiah, 700 years before, therefore the Lord shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. And of course, in Matthew and Luke's gospel, we see this purity, this sinlessness, this immaculate conception that we talked about for the last two weeks. This was prophesied hundreds of years before Jesus was born that a virgin would conceive and birth a son. Why? Because of the necessity of his sinlessness. We use John 3, 16 all the time. Do we we really hear for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son? Jesus is the only son ever begotten of God and not of man. This was not just important. It was a necessity for him to be pure, for him to be sinless. As the writer of Hebrews said, to be tempted in every way yet without sin. Peter reminds us, right in the same chapter where he reminds us of the Old Testament prophets, chapter one, he says, for as much as you know that you are not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold with your, from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish, without spot. He was perfect, he was sinless, and the prophecies predicted that he would be born of a virgin. Now, I said something earlier, and I hope we can get some confirmation from that. Because Jewish girls were raised believing a Messiah was coming that he would be born of a virgin. So you could understand if one of them got in trouble saying, maybe it's the Messiah. I don't know what happened. I said that, and it's comical, and I don't mean to be disrespectful to God and the whole nativity, but it didn't take people long to figure out she and he was not the fulfillment of prophecy. That it wasn't Jesus. A couple weeks ago I mentioned and I've read that people would name their child Jesus not because they thought he was the Messiah but in honor of the expected Messiah. People knew what was going on and was expecting this Messiah. But he was sinless. I don't know about you, but if you got any kids it didn't take you long to figure out they weren't sinless. Some of you are still not convinced. Talk to the preschool and nursery and the wanna workers or their teacher and they'll tell you they're not perfect and that occasionally they have a tendency to sin. These Old Testament prophecies foretold that the king would be pure. They foretold the place he would be born, the place he would raise, the place he would flee to. But the last thing I want us to see before we get out of here is the Old Testament prophecies foretold the purpose of the king. As we've already established and learned, the purpose of the king was not the purpose that they expected. And it's 
as difficult as it is for us as a believer to fathom the Christmas narrative, the nativity, and the purpose. Try to imagine how difficult it would have been for a Jewish man, Jewish woman, to believe this is the Messiah. His purpose as king was to be sovereign, first and foremost. There's a lot I could say about this, and I feel like some of this is repetitious for some of you who've been here the last couple weeks for this mini-series. Jesus didn't become king when he was born. Jesus has always been king. He was in the beginning. As a matter of fact, in the very first book of the Bible in Genesis, God says, let us make man in our own image. He had some company, and it wasn't naked baby angels. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, from the very foundation of the world, had a plan. And King Jesus was going to become a baby. The baby was not going to become king. He has been king. He will always be king. His purpose was to be sovereign. He is ruler. He is, according to Colossians, Jesus is creator and sustainer of the universe. That's a whole different level of sovereignty. He's not just king sitting on a throne. He created it all, and he keeps it all running. That's a sovereign king. Now, we got some so-called kings that create some stuff, but they can't keep it going. He is sovereign. And Isaiah says he'll be sovereign and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Zechariah chapter six tells us that he will be the great high priest upon his eternal throne. And in Luke, we see it. He will be called the son of the highest. The Lord God shall give him a throne of his father David. He shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. He is king, he is sovereign. And his purpose was not only to be sovereign, but to be the sacrifice. May we as Christians never make it through a Christmas season without remembering that Jesus was the sacrifice. The greatest gift that's ever been given. Met the greatest need that's ever been had by any person. The need for salvation. It's a lot to say. It's a lot of passages of scripture. I hope it helps us to understand that there is Old Testament prophecy predicting his not only birth, but his crucifixion. Not only his crucifixion, but his resurrection. You read through the Psalms and you get to Psalm 22 and you hear the psalmist saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Hundreds of years before Jesus on a cross said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When God turns his back on his only begotten son because he became sin for us. And the psalmist predicts it. And Isaiah predicts that, therefore, in chapter 53, I will divide him a portion with the great. He shall divide the spoil with the strong because he's poured out his soul into death. And he was numbered with the transgressors and he bared the sin of many. He was in between two thieves on the cross. And Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus was born, predicted he would die in between two thieves. 
We see that come to fruition in the Gospels. We see that come to fruition in Paul's writings, that Jesus was the sacrifice for the sins of the world. This great exchange where God became flesh. As John said, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. But then this word, this perfect word, this sinless word, this sinless savior would according to Paul's writings in 2 Corinthians 5 become sin for us. Go to a cross and pay the sin debt because God says the wages, the penalty, the payment for sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. May we never see baby Jesus without being reminded that he was born to die. No other man, no other woman was born for the purpose of dying. And he was born to die to be our savior. He was the sacrifice so that he could be our savior. I love Matthew's narrative of the birth. Maybe because I'm a man and he's talking to Joseph, I don't know. He says, she shall bring forth a son to Joseph and you shall call his name Jesus. Why Jesus? For he shall save his people from their sins. Isaiah prophesied that he would be salvation unto the end of the earth. Jesus himself said, for the Son of Man came to seek and save that which is lost. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 10, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him shall not be ashamed. For there's no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord is Lord over all, the rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For years I've heard people say that verse, and then I heard people ask, what does that mean? And I've answered it this way. Call on the name of the Lord. What does that mean? Call on who he is. How do I know who he is? What the word of God says about him. What does that mean? If I'm here today and I've never been saved, I've never been born again, I don't have a personal relationship with Jesus, he says, call on the name of the Lord and you shall be saved. What does that mean? That means you believe the word of God that Jesus is who these Old Testament prophets prophesied he would be. That he would be born of a virgin. That he would be sinless, never sin. That he would be the only person worthy to be the sacrifice for your sin and my sin. And that you believe that he, he went willingly to a cross and became sin for us. That you and I, by placing our faith and trust in him, could be made known like him, his righteousness, his life for mine. That's what it means to call on the name of the Lord. Call on the one who the Bible says paid the price for your sins, but three days later, by the power of God, rose victorious. By the way, the resurrection was prophesied as well. 
What does this do for us? What does fulfilled prophecies do for us? I hope it encourages believers to trust the word. You can trust this. It's true. You don't understand it? It's true. You can't explain it? It's true. I'm just honest and man enough to say, I can't explain it all, but I believe it's true. We ought to be comforted and encouraged by the word of God that it's true. Those promises that we read, those books that people buy last minute and say, 365 promises of God for, to help you through your life. Hey, yeah, you take it, throw it on the counter, act like you read it, but know that it's true. Why? Because his word is true. Because he is God, and he's a God of his word. You struggling? You struggling? And you need to hear somebody say, all things work together for good for them to love God, to call toward his purpose. Well, what does that do for me? It does nothing if you don't believe that it's true. Trust that it's true. Trust that he provides peace that surpasses all human understanding. Trust that his ways are not your ways, and he's going to work it out the way he needs to work it out and not the way you need to work it out. That's easy preaching, by the way, but hard living. Just ask God, I can work it out all the time. And I tell him, I got this. Trust him. Trust him that his word is true. Hey, believer, lost person, listen to this too. It ought to, it ought to make us say, why would we not believe all these prophecies that one person fulfilled. Why would we not believe this? And, and I hope your mind goes to this. In Acts chapter one, uh, Jesus has died, he's risen, and now he's on the mountaintop, and he takes off. It happened. He starts to lift, levitate back to the Father. And the disciples were doing like us, mouths wide open, gasping, what in the world are we watching? And two men appear. Hey, why y'all looking up in the sky like that? This is, this is the Rowan County version. Why y'all looking up in the sky like that? Why are you so amazed? This same Jesus, same one you see taken off, will return in like manner. It gets ugly down here sometimes. But we've got a promise. We've got a promise that he's coming back. And when he comes back, you might like this or you might not like this, depending on, he won't come back born of a virgin in a poor, lowly stable. He will come back as the king he is, sovereign, ruler, sustainer, creator of the universe, and he will come back in judgment. And if he's your savior, you skip out on the judgment. But if you've rejected him, if you've rejected him, see, see how this See how it twists and turns right here? If you've rejected this baby in a manger, if you've rejected this savior, if you've rejected this sinless, perfect one who came in love and grace and mercy, that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved during these thousands of years of grace and mercy when the gospel message is being preached Sunday after Sunday, Christmas after Christmas, Easter after Easter for you creasters who only show up then, and the gospel is being preached, and you said, no, I don't believe. One day he'll return, and he'll be king, and you'll worship him one way or the other, but you will be judged if you didn't make him Lord of your life. And that's the truth of the gospel. For those of us who've made him king, we're looking for the day when he returns as our king. Would you stand with me?
I'm gonna pray, if you're a believer, you've been encouraged. If you're lost, as tough and as hard as it sounds, what I just said is the reality of the gospel, the reality of the message. Here's what I believe. I believe God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I really believe whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. I believe if you trust him as your savior, you believe the word of God, not the word of the Baptist or the pastor, you believe the word of God, that Jesus is the only one worthy to be your savior. I believe he'll save you. Just that simple. Simple to believe, but it's a little more complex for it to be delivered. But God has taken care of it. And if you're here today and you're lost and you know it, and you need to trust him as your savior, I, be I believe you call on him. You acknowledge you're a sinner. Acknowledge I was born into sin, separated from God. You believe that Jesus died for your sin, took your sin on the cross, paid for it. Make him Lord, confess him as Lord. I believe he'll save you. Certainly if you do that, I would like to know about it. One of our pastors would like to know about it. We'd like to pray with you. I'd like to put some information in your hands, help you grow in grace and knowledge. Get you involved in a church. If you're a believer here today, I trust that you've been encouraged, been reminded of the, the promises of this perfect word. God's never failed, and he's not gonna fail us yet. Father, thank you for the promises that we have in your word. May we as believers celebrate the fact of the truth of your word demonstrated to us at Christmas time when we celebrate God in the flesh, Emmanuel coming to dwell among us, but not just to hang out, but to go to a cross and die a horrible death in our place to pay the price for the sins of the world. And I pray today if there's a person who's never understood, maybe, maybe they've never heard the message of the gospel, I pray today your Holy Spirit would convict them. They'd call on you, become a believer, be born again. And I pray you convict them to make a decision. As we see. Thank you for listening today. If you'd like to know more about Central Baptist Church, events, and ministries, please visit our webpage at cbckannapolis.com.